Welcome to a new podcast mini-series, The Overton Window. I'm Tamler Summers, and I'm here with a hero of mine, but one of the reasons I got into philosophy in the first place, Robert Wright. Oh, it's so nice of you to say that. Uh, well, I'm I'm uh, flattered, honored, and humbled. But right, I think we should begin this with a dispute. Now, you said the name of the series is The Overton Window. I thought we were going to call it Overton Windows. We are. Yes, that was my mistake. So, so I won uh, the first round. This is good. This I, is like I like uh, the way this is heading. Crossfire kind of style where yeah. we're debating. So that's the uh, first episode, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Overton Windows. That's way better also. So you may be hearing this on the Non-Zero podcast feed. You may be hearing it on Tamler's Very Bad Wizards feed. Going forward, you will uh, be able to get these. Yes. Yeah, a paid subscription to the Non-Zero newsletter will get this for you. The first uh, first edition is like totally totally free and public in it and it's on two 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 feeds yeah and for us it'll be on our the very bad wizards patreon very bad wizards for the robert wright listeners is a podcast that i do with david pizarro but so this overton window thing what is it what is it uh it's broadly speaking i guess you could say kind of the range of acceptable uh, opinions and utterances in the mainstream but Strictly speaking, it's confined to the realm of policy, right? That's where the, the concept originates in, in describing policy discourse. The, the term was invented by someone named Joseph Overton, who worked for, I don't have the name in front of me, but some kind of center-right think tank. And he came up with this idea that whatever your political movement that you want to start, its viability is going to depend on whether it falls within this range of acceptable, at the time, acceptable opinions. Anything outside of that will be considered too extreme, whether it's on the left, whether it's on the right. And the idea here is to examine how Overton windows get established. And in particular, this was an idea that I pitched to you a few months ago, how they change over time what accounts for the change, what accounts for where the boundaries are set at any particular juncture, um, how it can be weaponized, maybe manipulated. Uh, we're going to take one specific topic, and sometimes it'll be political, sometimes it could be academic, sometimes it could be like UFOs. I mean, the possibilities are endless, and we're going to examine the Overton window as it is now, and then how it has changed over some specific period of time. What attracts you to this kind of discussion? Well, I guess having run up against the bounds of acceptable discourse in various, uh, I mean, even recently with the, with the Ukraine war. Mm -hmm. uh, Is that our next one, Ukraine? Uh, it could be, could be, yeah. God knows. Um, and as we will see, as, as we discuss our respective histories with Israel-related uh, issues, um, I have run afoul of some of the speech police occasionally in that realm. And also, I mean, right now, this is a big, a big issue is kind of free speech. What can you say? What can't you say? Now, that's not the same as the Overton window question. Again, strictly speaking, the Overton window question is about policy advocacy. Mm -hmm. But as you and I have talked about this, I've come to realize that almost all speech policing that I'm aware of that we talk about is kind of related to policies, even if it's not explicitly about that. And, and I think we're going to see that this is the case with Israel as well. Much of the speech that's policed isn't about policy per se, but there are correlations between the way you describe like uh, Israel and, and what's going on there and what kinds of policies you would, uh, you would prefer. Yes. And I guess the, the way this, can get weaponized is that if you are outside the Overton window at any given point, you can either be attacked, like, for example, if you're outside on Israel, you can be attacked as anti-Semitic on, on, on one end, or, and I think this also is part of the dynamic, you can be more or less ignored in the mainstream press. And sometimes it's policed, the Overton window, the boundaries, and sometimes it's not. It just kind of naturally is there. 
but um, you know, whatever the implications of that are uh, policy-wise, we'll certainly talk about that too. But I think we're coming at it in a broader sense than Joseph Overton uh, might have intended. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I am interested about with this, I think it's a great example of some of the extra rational aspects of ethical debate and political debate. The way this works is that things outside the Overton window just get excluded from consideration. And it's you're not excluding it at, because you've deliberated. It just already comes. It's like an assumed premise. It's a prior. Uh, the boundaries as to what could possibly count as a plausible position on whatever the topic is. I just think it's really interesting that that can shift so radically over long period of time, short period of time. So, I mean, the the biggest example of this is same-sex marriage, which was in the as early as the early 2000s, just considered something that was pretty much out of the Overton window, certainly policy-wise. Mm -hmm. And then just in 10 years became the law of the land. Um, how that shifted is, it's pretty interesting that something that was considered even if you were kind of in favor of it in theory it was considered well okay but we're not doing that you know maybe but, we could have civil unions or something like that and then 10 years later and, and certainly where we are now it's almost like if you're opposed to it that's outside the overton window and a good example of how outside the overton window used to be is i was at the new republic when andrew sullivan wrote for the new republic andrew was also there a cover story that's now widely recognized as a real milestone in 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 awareness of the issue kind of this was around 1990 give or take uh and it was the case for gay marriage or something on the cover there was a uh, a, a, a a wedding cake with two what we, we would have called i don't know grooms on, on the top of the cake mike kinsley was so proud of that he loved that cover he was the editor and uh i i i thought Whoa, I never thought about that. And, you know, look, I'm not the most sophisticated cosmopolitan guy in the world, maybe, but I wasn't, I, you know, I wasn't completely out of touch with things. And I honestly had never considered the issue. Yeah. And and, and then suddenly uh, it, it, it's in 10 years, within 10 years, it's really in play. And then in another 15 years, game over. Yeah. It's been a 180. So, yeah. so that that was a fascinating case. And it doesn't usually work like that. The Overton window just completely shifting so that what used to be like squarely in the middle or even to the left of the Overton window is now already like outside of it. If you want to go back to the idea of civil unions right now, you're French at this point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you don't even see that. You don't even see conservatives saying that much anymore. No, they're focused on trans issues. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is another interesting example. Again, something that goes from not considered or even known about at all to something that is at the center of at least uh, debates in certain circles. Any other things to say about this idea as a whole? This was your idea. I just want to, in case this is a complete and ignominious failure, I would just like to get out there that this was your idea. Yeah, I will take the fall for this, but I couldn't do this on my own, even to have guests, or, which, you know, I don't do. And I couldn't do it with David Pizarro because he's completely disconnected from politics for mm. the most part. Mm. Um, and you are the person because I think, first of all, you know about history and political history uh, in a way that I just absolutely don't. And then uh, also you're kind of always at the edges of the Overton window and sometimes you are on the other side of it. And I've always admired that about your political work. I guess even some of your other work, like the you know, non-zero at the time was mm. at the edge of where you could be as a scientifically informed, you know, kind of secular public intellectual. And so I thought you would be a perfect person to to try this with. Uh, yeah, you're somehow putting the pressure back on me so that I, so that if this is an ignominious failure, some of the blame will fall on me. That, that is, that is the subtext of that, right? Pretty much. Yeah. Okay, blame, well, that was, that blame was really well right. done. Yeah. He's anti-Semitic. I'm not, I, I, I contest some of your premises. I, I, there are tons of people who know more about history and stuff than, than me, but, um, you have genuinely heterodox opinions. I, I, I have say. some, I, I do have genuinely heterodox opinions. That's true. Well, so let's talk about our, uh, I think the first topic that came to mind with this is Israel, what we think of Israel 
policy in general, what we think of the funding that America gives to Israel, what we think about Zionism as a whole, what we think about the question of whether Israel is an apartheid state, as Amnesty International called them, I think for the first time a couple of years ago. This seems like a really good example of a window that has shifted a lot since, you know, I was growing up, but not without a struggle and not without a fight. And this one has been a bit of a push and pull. Yeah, and it ain't over. You, you know what I discovered? You know what I discovered only today? There's, uh, I don't know if you know about this, this guy named James Cavallero, who had been nominated uh, by the Biden administration to be a representative on the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. And he was, you know, qualified. He had been president of it before, I think. Uh, but they dug up some tweets where he uh, described Israel as an apartheid state and, uh, oh, and also accused uh, top Democrat in Congress of being, quote, bought uh, by uh, Israel lobby groups. And um, that was it. They withdrew the nomination only a few months ago. Um, yeah. So it's still, I think we agree, it's changed a lot. Uh, and and it's a lot easier to um, for your career to survive your calling Israel an apartheid state, if you want to do that. But um, But it's, you know, it's ongoing. I, I thought maybe it would be good to start off by just giving... Uh, our kind of personal background with regard to this topic, because they're uh, certainly both relevant to how we think about this issue now and how we think about it in relation to this concept. Should I start? Sure. You've had a connection to Israel longer than I have or for more of your life. That's true. And in fact, from the very beginning, because uh, that's where I was born, um, although I moved here when I was six months old, uh, my dad was on sabbatical there and um, my mom was Israeli. I was an Israeli citizen for most of my life. I'm 90% sure I gave it up about 10 to 15 years ago. Not seems, out of any seems like of, the kind of thing you'd remember, but I, I agree. Um, but it was for a boring reason. It was like taxes. And also they kind of yeah. hassled me when I would leave the country. Either they wanted money or they wanted to know why I wasn't in the army. In any case, my wife assures me that I have given it up, but I, I don't know for sure. I would say there's a 10% chance I'm still a citizen. Uh, like I said, my mom was Israeli. She was definitely on the left, but probably what you would call the Zionist left. She died when I was 17. So I honestly don't know. Like I would love to be have a talk with her about some of the more radical critiques, but I don't remember anything more radical than just you know, disliking the Likud party and, um, you know, being pro the Israeli uh, left. Um, my dad was American, uh, but very much an Israel hawk, especially as he got older. And I'm glad he's not alive to hear what's to come. I wasn't raised religiously in any sense, in any like real sense, uh, but I have a slew of Orthodox Jewish relatives, many of whom have moved to Israel since. None of them lived there when I was growing up, but a lot of them have moved there. And hopefully if there's a God, they won't hear this either. I went to Hebrew school until I was like 14 or 15. You know, one of those conservative Hebrew schools got the normal Hebrew school Kool-Aid about Israel's founding and the subsequent wars. And, you know, like when I say Kool-Aid, it's not to dismiss everything that I was taught. But I got one side of it. I got zero percent of what we learned presented the Palestinian perspective at all. Right. Mm -hmm. I didn't know. I learned what the word Nakba meant when I was in my 30s, which, is, the, which is what Palestinians called uh, their displacement. The 48 uh, war was like David versus five Goliaths. That's how I was taught, who just couldn't abide the existence of an Israeli state. The 67 war was heroic. The Air Force and the Mossad were always given to me in like glowing terms. And also in terms of like, they changed how the world saw Jews. And I came across this quote from a Lyndon Johnson guy uh, who was like after 1967, said, Israel at war destroys the prototype of the pale, scrawny Jew. The soldiers I saw were tough, muscular, and sunburned. And, you know, like if you're a scrawny Jew, like I was 12 years old, 14 years old, and you're taught, ooh, like you could be a badass. Like that's how we learned it, you know? Mm -hmm. And we didn't hear jack shit about like the occupation that followed the 67 war. It was just, look how awesome the Israeli Air Force is. I certainly... um you know, I didn't have an early connection to Israel. In fact, I would say 
certainly through the age of like 11, I had almost no awareness of Israel or of the idea of Jewishness. I mean, my, my father was a, a an army officer. Both my parents were from rural Texas. Um, we moved around a lot. And, and until sixth grade, when I went to a public school in San Francisco, there's never a very sizable Jewish population. I mean, in retrospect, I knew some Jews. I just didn't know they were Jews. When I went to college on the East Coast, you know, I got, I became just kind of more aware. I, 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 you know, I knew more Jews. Uh, and then when I went to the new Republic, which was, let's see, 80, 1988, um, you know, it became an issue that was really hard to miss because, uh, well, first of all, Leon Wieseltier was there. Yeah. Um, and he has a profound, uh, interest in these issues, but also the, the magazine was owned by Marty Peretz, who's, uh, you know, very committed and active, uh, Zionist, and and a lot of people would say of a of a conservative sort, I think. And when I uh, Mike Kinsley, who was the editor, was going to take a sabbatical for like seven or eight months, and I was going to be acting editor. And this came quick. I had only been at the magazine a few months, and Mike uh, chose me for that role. And Marty, I think, felt that no one should ever be even acting editor of the new Republic without having been to Israel, you know? So he sent me on this, um, on this trip to Israel. Uh, and he, you know, when Marty Peretz sends you on a trip to Israel, uh, you will, you will be plugged into some, uh, influential people. I, uh, Teddy Collick, who was the mayor of Jerusalem, uh, not only did I get FaceTime with him, he came to the hotel to see me. It's like the people, the respect I got yeah. thereafter from the staff at the hotel was like unbelievable. Once they saw that that Teddy Collick was dropping by to have coffee with me, uh, I had a, like an hour long talk on a park bench with Bibi Netanyahu, who at that point was just this up and coming member of the Knesset. I uh, wasn't famous. But anyway, notwithstanding how carefully uh, Marty had set up my itinerary, um, I think it didn't go entirely as you might have hoped in terms of the effect on my views. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One was that when my wife and I, and Marty very generously uh, paid for her to accompany me, when my wife and I were in a restaurant in Jerusalem, there was a Palestinian waiter who we started talking to. And he started telling us about his situation. He, he crossed every day from the West Bank to come here and work in Jerusalem. And he said, like, one thing that would happen is that, you know, he'd get interrogated. If the soldiers wanted to interrogate him, they would. And they were like about his age. He's like 18, 19. So were they, except they had guns. And uh, he, he said they'd say things like, are you fucking Jewish girls? And like they're holding guns while they say this, you know. And, and so yeah. first of all, I just thought this is not like a great situation when you've got two rival ethnicities and you give guns to one set of, eight, you know, the 18-year-old males on one side and you guys get to routinely – uh, interrogate uh, uh, and just kind of, you know, uh, have dominance over in a meaningful sense. Uh, the ones on the other side, I can imagine trouble arising. But really what struck me more was how desperate he was to tell his story. I mean, he didn't know I was a journalist or anything. He just right. knew we were Americans. And it was like, it was as if he so rarely had a chance to get his story out to the wider right. world. Uh, and that kind of impressed me the most, I think. I wrote a piece for the New York Times like around 2010 or 11 that was called Against Pro-Israel. But I, what I was complaining about was the way the term pro-Israel was just reserved for a certain kind of supporter of Israel. Like right. if, if you're like at J Street, these kind of relatively progressive people. Um, yeah. You weren't pro-Israel. Yeah, and they support a two-state solution. It's not like they're... You know, which is an affirmation of Zionism. And that's that's the other thing I'll say. So so about myself and my own views, as long as I thought a two-state solution was possible, which I no longer do, I supported a two-state solution. And that's a kind of affirmation of Zionism because one of the states is going to be a Zionist state. Now, I mean, it, it's not my ideal form of government uh, and neither is Islamism. I, in my ideal world, you, you would not have uh, countries whose uh, kinds of foundations are are fundamentally informed uh, by kind of the elevation of any given religion or I think whatever, but uh, it's, it's a complicated world. People have different governments and, and that had never been a, I, I, I had never considered myself an anti-Zionist. Meaning what exactly in your mind? Cause I know this can be a contentious term. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know that as a practical matter, it involves certain kinds of preferences. I mean, from the beginning it has like, 
you can't become a citizen of Israel if you're not Jewish unless you convert to Judaism. And even there, I think it has to be Orthodox Judaism, right? Mm -hmm. So okay. that's an that's an example uh, of the an implication. Uh, an, another one I wasn't totally aware of, uh, I had Daniel Levy, who has in the past uh, been a negotiator on the Israeli side on my podcast recently, and he explained to me that within Israel proper, you can be an Arab who is an Israeli citizen, and under certain circumstances, which I think are pretty narrow, and I don't understand exactly what they are, but you can go say, I want to live here, I want to buy this house. And they can legally say, sorry, you're not Jewish. There are certain kinds of circumstances yeah. in which that still happens. So those are two things I'd say about the practical implications of Zionism in Israel proper. Now, yeah. the whole West Bank issue is a whole other thing we can we can get to. Right. Uh, and I, I, I would say I think most people who who in observing the situation start to think about apartheid uh, Start off by thinking about the West Bank, even though some of the people now are saying the Israel state itself within the state, yes. it's an apartheid state. Original borders. Yeah. yeah. Um, th that's a good thing to separate. I do think Zionism as a as an idea, you know, this was definitely something that I always was taught was obviously a good thing, you know, in light of the Holocaust, in light of, you know, centuries of persecutions of Jews. You know, to have this kind of Jewish state where Jews could go and they would be safe is a good idea. And I think, like you, I question whether, you know, this idea of religion and the state should be connected at all. I it's in the abstract, certainly growing up and into my early adulthood, never had any problems with it. It does start to get pressure on it when you look at the details, like when you look at people who can't buy houses or somebody who marries a non-Jewish citizen, uh, Arab citizen, and they don't automatically become citizens, you know, in contrast to what would happen if the person was Jewish. Like it's these little details, uh, I think, that kind of matter whether you call yourself pro or anti-Zionist. But this is the thing, like when I grew up, yeah, you could question the settlements and the settlers, and they seemed like violent freaks, and, and Israel wasn't doing enough to rein them in, but they didn't represent Israel as a whole. You know, so I didn't like Likud like my mom. I didn't like Netanyahu, but there was no questioning on my part of like Israel's right to exist, no comparison to apartheid that I thought wasn't just like obviously anti Semitic. Uh, and I traveled back to Israel a bunch in the 90s and 2000s. I still had family there for a while. And and I, I think the only thing that raised my eyebrows at all is when like secular Israelis would say to me, like, you're Jewish. How come you don't live in Israel? Mm. And I'd be like, well, because I live in the United States. Like I go to school there. What do you mean? And they're like, you should live here. You're a Jew. And I'd be like, well, I don't know if I have to live somewhere just because I'm Jewish. And I, and I was just puzzled by it. Like, I didn't connect it to any kind of nationalist impulse or anything like that. But that was a, a, a running thread. Um, the, the other thing that I remember get, getting creeped out by, I, I attended a fucking APAC event in my late 20s. And the final speaker was Netanyahu, who was prime minister at the time. And I was very turned off by the whole thing, start to finish, you know, which is normal for me. I'm not somebody who who likes to be in crowds of like-minded people. But I really got the willies at this. All the people who were there, like doing like Jews, raise the roof, you know. And then I remember to this day, his closing statement, Netanyahu, he said, I have to go catch a plane, mine and just marched off stage and everyone's wildly cheering. And I'm like, what the fuck does that even mean? You know, <laughs> like, what does that mean? Like, yeah, you're prime minister. Of course you have a plane. But then everybody there is just enraptured. But overall, look, my Overton window was basically the one I saw in the mainstream media publications. You could be critical of Israel and the Israeli right. But like to go into the deeper questions about what actually happened to Palestinians in 1948 or anything like the BDS boycott divestment uh, sanctions or the apartheid mm -hmm. comparison, I just accepted what was out there that that was driven by anti-Semitic motives. And it's an obvious double standard that wouldn't be applied to other countries, you know, which we could talk about. Just to conclude, like, I'd love to say I saw the light a little earlier than I did, but I just didn't. What finally did it for you? Like, I think my Overton window shifted along the lines of the country. Like, it took the shift in the Overton window for me to actually start uh, confronting 
issues that have been there my whole life. But because I didn't have it in me, I guess, to really go exploring outside this range of what was being presented to me in publications that I otherwise trusted, I, like it took that to change my uh, views on this in a pretty radical way. And like, that's really important. I think this is an issue where I have, I wouldn't say done a 180, but I've, I've really shifted very far to the left over the last 10, 15 years, like well into my adulthood, I didn't have the view that I have right now. And it's purely because I would say of this shift. And so it can be really important just in terms at the individual level and also at the more collective level of just shaping opinions just by getting uh, certain positions an open hearing. Yeah. So when this person said to you, what was it like, uh, if you're Jewish, why aren't you living in Israel or something? Yeah. Like that, a lot of people would say that to me. Well, I think that's yeah. a, that's central to the whole thing we're addressing today uh, is like the relationship. Well, like the relationship between being Jewish and being a Zionist, the relationship between criticizing Israel and criticizing Jews. And, yeah. uh, you know, you kind of get this on both sides. You know, it's funny. I was listening to the Katie Halper a podcast after you brought her experience to my attention and she said something like, what was it? Uh, there, there, there are two kinds of people who equate Zionists with Jews. Zionists, and I doubt she meant all Zionists, but she said Zionists and anti-Semites. And so, say Barry Weiss, she says this explicitly. If you criticize Zionism, you, you are an anti-Semite. You are, in effect, criticized. You, you are critical of Jews broadly, or you don't like Jews broadly. Or You're driven by anti-Semitic motives. But she is at the same time complaining when other people uh, do that, right? Like yeah, uh, no. on the other side. The hypocrisy of Barry Weiss on well, Israel. This is a whole is other subject. <laughs> it's I, almost I mean, too like obvious to talk about. Yeah, of course, she's, she's, a, she's a free speech crusader. Yeah. She, doesn't, she doesn't want people to be stigmatized for speech unless they criticize Israel, in which case they should be called anti-Semites. So, yeah, it's a... Um, it's a complicated issue. What do you take the Overton window to be now? Um, and then we can maybe talk about how that's changed uh, since the 80s and 90s. Well, I would say the, the apartheid example is interesting because, you know, Jimmy Carter wrote a book called in 2006 called Palestine, Peace, Not Apartheid. And he was uh, criticized as, I mean, either implicitly or explicitly by, by some very prominent people as being anti-Semitic. Within, I think, two or three years, he issued a kind of apology. Now, he emphasized he wasn't talking about Israel proper. He was talking about the West Bank. And even there, I think he was kind of more saying you're headed in this direction. I'm not sure. But he certainly wasn't yeah. saying that Israel within, uh, you know, within the recognized uh, borders is an apartheid state. But he got sufficient um, blowback that I think you can say that that was successful policing. I didn't hear many people using the term apartheid thereafter. I hadn't heard that many before. Um, yeah. Now, um, on the one hand, as I said, there's still people who pay a price for doing it. This guy I, I mentioned, Cavallero. But anyway, on the other hand, that aside, the fact that you can still pay a price for using that term, as you said, I think you said Amnesty International, but I also think Human Rights Watch and mm -hmm. I think, uh, what is it, Bet, uh, there's an Israeli human rights group. I think all three are now saying that, that that Israel itself, Israel proper is an apartheid state as well as. By Israel some, itself, you mean former borders, original borders, Israel. Yeah, I mean, I think that they, they say if you've got some kind of two state solution, but everything stayed the same within the Israel part, that they would still consider that an apartheid state. Um, so, you know, the borders have certainly moved. I mean, and look, you have Peter Beinert in the New York Times. I don't know what his exact position on apartheid is, but he's certainly defending people who mm -hmm. uh, who, who characterize uh, Israeli policy that way. So that's yeah. been a change. Yeah. I mean, there's still smear campaigns like in the last month. We've seen a bunch of Roger Waters attacks for just simply supporting BDS. I mean, that's all it is. And he's obviously been very pro-Palestinian. He is, I will say he is not the most diplomatic in his language. I, I, I've observed no, this mainly right. in other contexts. He's just like, he's just kind of asking for trouble. But I think you're right yeah. that, I mean, the latest uproar was about the fact 
that he allegedly was parading around in a Nazi uniform. Well, first of all, it wasn't really a Nazi uniform. But the second thing is, I gather for the wall. Though, yeah, he's been like doing that... it for for four decades. Or when did when did the wall yeah. the album the wall? It, it is meant to represent generic authoritarianism, which the wall is manifestly opposed to. That's what the wall, you know. Yeah. Um. So that's kind of a it seems like no. Kind the of people a who were saying to do that in the you know in the same country of Anne Frank is an insult to her memory. It's like he's doing the fucking wall. Like that is like, have you like seen the video? Have you seen the movie? Have you seen like this is what that album is about? And yes, he is. He can be insufferable just like being interviewed about anything, being interviewed yeah. about Pink Floyd. But he is definitely someone who has been targeted. You know, there was the big Stephen Salada. Salada, is that how you pronounce it? Affair at University of Illinois. Uh -huh. um, he got off. He, he got tenure and then they withdrew it. Uh, for his pro-Palestinian stances. And actually, like, really, they, you know, he settled out of court with them because it's illegal what they did, but had to leave academia. But there were so many people in mainstream outlets objecting to this, even if it happens. And even if it happens, you know, with Ilhan Omar, which it did, I, I feel like she was unfairly attacked on every side. Same with Tlaib. Um, it was, you know, by, with Ilhan Omar, it was about like saying that the Israel lobby has uh, somewhat outsized influence on Congress, which is just obviously true. You know, she was accused of anti-Semitism anti and anti-Semitic tropes. The uh, phrase was, yeah. it's all about the Benjamins. When all she about was the Benjamins. Describing, I guess, why some congressperson voted in favor of Israel. And, you know, I mean, APAC is a lobby. You know, you are... If you describe pretty much any other lobby in the world or in the United States as using uh, money to influence politics, it's no big deal. You can yeah. even use extravagant language like the senators bought and paid for by the NRA and, and, and so on. Yeah. Uh, but but the thing is that in this case, you can argue that there is this anti-Semitic trope thing because there is this old anti-Semitic trope, you know, oh, as yeah. you know, you know, Jews behind the scenes controlling everything, pulling all the strings. Still, it seems like you should be able to argue that a lobby is doing lobbying, you know. And this is that umbrella that they try to uh, use to shield against legitimate critiques of both Israel policy and how much money and how, you know, and our support for Israel, at, uh, the United States. Um, it just seems like right now that's wearing a little bit thin. You also find much more open critiques of Israel and the apartheid is a really good example of this, where now they will say that and, and debate it in the Washington Post or the Times. Um, you'll still have your Brett Stevens saying, you know, uh, no, it's obviously not apartheid. You're anti-Semitic for, for suggesting it. But before you just didn't see it. And if somebody did bring it up, they were dismissed. I feel like that's the biggest, like if you have to take a single example, it's that that's in play now mm -hmm. in a way that it wasn't before. And that's really important. And I think one thing people don't understand is like the ADL and APAC and things like the Simon uh, Wiesenthal Center are, you know, there's a there's institutionalized policing um, of the debate and they play um, yeah. an active role. Yeah. Do you think um, because I think you were critical of Israel more than most earlier than most. Do you think you weren't maybe overtly censored in that you had a piece like Katie Halper that was ready to go and then they just cancel it and fire her. It's not like that, but rather there are certain opportunities that you didn't get because uh, of your views on Israel and maybe uh, against the kind of American military adventurism more broadly. Are you bitter? Do you feel like you've been ignored or excluded because of this in any way? I wouldn't say that. I mean, you just never know. It's it, it, yeah. you're right. I mean, um, you know, one could speculate about certain things, but you just you just never know. I mean, I, yeah. I don't really know how the I, I, I suspect the Atlantic wasn't uh, in all respects delighted with my uh, contributions, because for that one year I had it was a blog. I didn't even run these things by, you know, bloggers just posted and came up with their own headlines. Yeah. And I, I generated a few things. uh that generated controversy about yeah. Israel. Um, but you never know. I was happy to see in the Atlantic, which I associate with a very pro-Israel, very pro-Zionist perspective, but I was happy to see that James Fallows 
one of their writers wrote a piece defending uh, having Max Blumenthal at some event that he was hosting and, mm. you know, mm. having him air his views after the Goliath book was published. So that was that was nice. And I thought maybe a little bit against type. But even in the Atlantic these days, you find some really harsh critiques. I think you're I mean, Jim Fallis kind of has tenure in a certain sense. He can say what he wants. Jeff Goldberg is very, I would say, pretty far right pro-Israel. Uh, he's the editor in chief, but it, maybe it's a sign of things, uh, how things have changed that he's got to admit a certain amount of stuff that's critical of uh, Israel yeah. into the, you know, because as you say, it's, it's, it's moving so far right. I mean, this week there was, I just glanced, but it seems like there was uh, the second of what you might call a pogrom in the West Bank with settlers rampaging through a Palestinian village. And, and of course the settlers would point to the fact that uh, there was uh Violence uh, from, you know, there's more and more an organized uh, armed Palestinian resistance. Um, and, uh, for the first time this week in a long, in years and years, years, Israel had to use helicopters to suppress uh, armed resistance in, in, a, in a Palestinian village. Um, so it's getting, you know, it's getting worse and worse. But yeah, God knows it's moving to the right. This, this government is just it's unbelievable. And, and, you know, there were all these protests in Tel Aviv and what Israel as a whole about this Supreme Court, you know, that they were going to strip away their independence. But, you know, there's certainly the perspective that these protests were in favor of keeping a status quo, that these people who are now in charge are dangerously unhinged. And we just want to go back to doing the, you know, the normal oppression that that we've been doing for the last 30 or 40 years, both in the West Bank and Gaza, but then also uh, within Israel and like kicking people out of homes or making them mount some huge legal defense to, to keep them. And when people say Israel is like apartheid, they just mean that, you know, it's a very different experience being uh, a Jew who's an Israeli citizen and and a non-Jew as a and as Israeli citizen. And if you uh, and that's if you live within the, the the borders, if you live in the West Bank or Gaza, then, you know, just going from one place to another is something that is actively policed. You're sub subjected to uh, humiliation, daily humiliation. But like the story of you going to Israel, when was that? That's well, like, that what was year did you... 80. That was actually during the first intifada, which was not violent. The right. second, in, uh, not fun. really. I mean, stone throwing. But the, the but the second intifada was very violent. So this was in uh, late 88. Right. Uh, I think. And and I went back and visited the West Bank in 2010, I think, on, on a thing that was actually led by uh, Matt Duss. Michelle Goldberg was along on that trip. And uh, she's written about some of her experiences there in her New York Times column. But but it's in the West Bank. We spent a fair amount of time in the West Bank. There you really see, like, whether or not you want to say that this is in some technical sense apartheid, it's crazy to say that anybody who calls what's happening in the West Bank apartheid must be motivated by anti-Semitism. I mean, it, <laughs> you know, it's like there's there's roads you can't drive on unless you're Jewish. There's like in, in Hebron. Uh, you know, you're you're there and like there's a nice uh, right through the middle of the town to the tomb of the patriarchs from old Hebron, where Palestinians live. Uh, nice paved road Jews can walk on. And you're like, how do the Palestinians move from place to place? And they point up this hill. And it's like, you know, it's like you almost need mountain climbing gear. Not to mention the fact that, you know, of course, the Palestinians can't vote, but are ultimately governed by the Israeli government. These are the West Bank Palestinians. Um, yeah. They don't have due process of law. Whereas, you know, uh, settlers living uh, 50 yards from or whatever, get get all these things. And this stuff, though, has been going on. It's not just with this recent rightward tilt of Israeli politics. Um, this has been going on to, to some degree. It's probably almost certainly gotten worse, but going on long before we were worried about a guy through as Baruch Goldstein's photo on his office wall for he years. Is, um He's in the cabinet, Ben Gavir and uh, Baruch Goldstein, of course, is the the uh, the settler who massacred 20 something Palestinians at the tomb at the aforementioned tomb of the patriarchs. 
yeah. where Abraham is said to be buried. It's divided into two. And on one side, there's like a little where the Palestinians go. There's like a mosque. And he went into that mosque with a submachine gun. And uh, yeah, no, his, by the way, his grave always has fresh flowers on it. I, I saw that when I went to Hebron. Mm -hmm. but, uh, and, and, and this guy, you're right. There's a, there's a, a guy in a cabinet now. Till a couple of years ago, when he entered, decided to enter politics, he had a portrait of, of Baruch Goldstein up in his living room on the wall. Yeah. So the, the reason to say this is that, yes, this is kind of in your face, obviously horrible. Somebody who would celebrate uh, a person who massacred people praying in a mosque. But then it's a separate question whether you're critical of what happened when Shimon Perez or, you know, Rabin or somebody in office. Um because that stuff is still going on during those periods, too. It's just it's more under the radar. And, you know, certainly there's one perspective and I, I, I'm not informed enough to really weigh in on this, that all these uh, right wing crazies are doing is lifting the mask, which ironically then allows people to kind of see what was already going on there. I don't know. What are your thoughts about that? That's certainly a perspective I've come across. I, I think, first of all, there's been more and more settlements. And so I do think 30 years ago, there was more in the way of genuine hope on the part of uh, people they call liberal Zionists in Israel that they could work out like a, a two-state solution. There, there was more hope. It just it just becomes less and less plausible uh, that, that that can happen. And like, so what does that leave as... As the options, um, you know, uh, there's some kind of ideal one-state solution that involves a, some kind of federation with Palestinian autonomy. But I, I think uh, – I don't think that's in the cards. That would mean giving the West Bank Palestinians a vote. Then aside from that, what is it? It's like something that increasingly you just concede is apartheid, at least as it applies in the West Bank, or ethnic cleansing, or what? Uh, so – yeah, I think right. Someone could say, well, why not just make everybody a citizen of this uh, big place called Israel and give them the right to vote, give them the same rights that any current Israeli has. But that's not on the table either. It's not. Israelis aren't going to let it happen. Israeli Jews aren't going to let it happen. And, you know, I will say, um, I, I like. I don't think they react to their situation any more irrationally than, say, Americans reacted to 9-11. I mean, right. you know, the, the second intifada was this horrible thing uh, where pizza parlors were blowing up. Even if you kind of uh, don't consider armed resistance surprising, in given the circumstances in the West Bank, the fact remains that if you're an Israeli and pizza parlors start blowing up, you're going to completely freak out and, and say, I'm never going to trust these people. There's somebody I know in Israel as a fellow academic. You know, when I met him around 2000, mid 2000s, he was very much a, a liberal Zionist, but liberal, you know, very anti all the settlements, very worried about that, both from the Palestinian perspective and from, uh, you know, what it was going to be for Israel's future. And I ran into him at a conference a couple few years ago um, and talked to him about this issue. And it was, you know, it was right around the time of, I don't know, some Gaza attack, some really bad uh, event that actually got a lot of negative press in the States. And I was saying, so what are you thinking about all of this? He said, I, don't, I mean, look, we've tried to give them a country. We tried to give, uh, you know, and they keep uh, doing this intifada. They keep blowing things up. And I was like, OK, well, I, I understand that. But surely you're against the settlement expansions, right? It's like, yeah, no. And I'm like, no, wait, what? And he was he had become just hard line. Mm. And I get the sense that this is happening in Israel and has, you know, the exact opposite direction than what we've been talking about, where they have become much more hardened and much more willing to consider things that are so flatly, almost openly just in favor of anti-democratic and, and maybe apartheid-ish kinds of, of means. Like you said, like at a certain point, just like with 9-11, people are not going to be worried about uh, human rights abuses that much anymore. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I actually think the extent to which, just to pick up on a tiny point of yours, the, 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 a, a true state has been offered to the Palestinians is exaggerated. Yes, agreed. But I would say that, you know, on both sides, you know, in a certain sense, people are acting the way that's not shocking, given what we know about human nature and how people act under circumstances. 
I mean, I don't, I don't buy into the view that Israelis are just, uh, uh, you know, monsters or, or whatever, even though I think it's, I think this, I think the speech bounds have been bad for Israel, honestly, because I think if they had been subjected to more critical scrutiny, I think if 30, 40 years ago, uh, the bounds on speech hadn't been so effective, maybe there's a chance that we'd have seen, uh, a more, uh, more heartfelt attempt to, to solve the problem. I don't know. But uh, that's hard to know. What else do you think led to the shift in our politics? We talked about the Israeli right. What else do you think has led this leftward shift in the Overton window? And what? Yeah, well, I mean, there is this big, you know, generational uh, contrast among American Jews in in attitude. Right. With the younger people being to the left on Israel. and one thing some people say is that they are just farther removed from the Holocaust. They don't they don't have the memory. Mm-hmm. And so Israel is not as emotional an issue for them. It, and it isn't just memory of the Holocaust. It's like increasingly they don't have a relative that they know well who had a direct connection to the Holocaust. Yeah, um, that's possible. I think, as you you alluded to smartphones, it's made it easier for Palestinians to get their story out. Now, story may not go over all the channels they like, but it, it will circulate uh, within certain social media channels. You know, uh, for example, when the uh, Al Jazeera correspondent was killed, and I think initially Israel was saying probably wasn't us, and uh, yeah. eventually that you know it became clear that that she had been killed intentionally or not by a social media. Just yeah, like like in a lot of topics, I think where the Overton window changed. Like I think police violence, you know, uh, and attitudes about police more broadly. That's another potential topic, by the way, y- you know, social media. I, I think and I this could be more me, but I think Bernie, the rise of Bernie in mm. 2016, if you were, as I was kind of attracted to other elements of Bernie's campaign, uh, that side. Now, all of a sudden, there were these other opinions that he had, and then the the other people in the squad or whatever uh, are are putting voice to that. Now, you know, and I'm already primed for this by 2016 or 2015 or whenever I start uh, becoming more excited about Bernie. But like now, I'm going to take some of this this other stuff seriously as well in a way that I probably hadn't quite. And so, I do think there's probably a lot of other people like me in in that way. It's like you come to it just because there's a new kind of politics that's shifting Overton windows and all these other domains that you're already in favor of. And now it starts mm-hmm. to you start to take other views associated with with that, those more seriously than you did before. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. And, you know, his foreign policy advisor was Matt Duss, who I've mentioned a couple of times in this context. Um, uh, not that I think Bernie needed guidance on the subject of Israel. You know, and and the BDS issue, I mean, we talked about the connection between speech and kind of action. Um, that's still a fight. There are there's a case that I think is ultimately headed for the Supreme Court about these state laws mm-hmm. against that that say that if you I'm I live in one of these states. In one of the states. Well, there's yeah, there's a famous case. She was a I think a speech therapist or something who at who who in order to do work for the University of Texas, they, they asked her to sign a thing saying she would never advocate a boycott of Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is lots of states have passed this uh, kind of law that if you're going to get be eligible for a government contract, you have to sign away your right to support a boycott. And that that's working its way through the courts. And that's an example of how much firepower is going into the policing. Yeah. No, I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of mind boggling that that would be a law that we have to sign something saying we're not pro BDS, which is, has nothing to do with our country. It has only to do mm-hmm. with uh, Israel. Um, whatever you think about BDS, and we maybe could talk about that, that seems crazy. And it's such a good example of this kind of policing that happens. We've been more talking about it in terms of being ignored or censured or uh, censored, you know, excluded from the conversation, being deemed an anti-Semite or whatever. But then there's just these other ways that it can happen and that the, that the window tries to get policed. But now, again, I would say 
that seems shakier right now. And BDS and whether or not to be pro BDS is more acceptable to at least talk about. I used to think, you know, not that everybody who supported BDS was an anti-Semite, but it is kind of funny that they're not uh, calling for boycotting all these other countries where the human rights abuses are just as bad or way worse. And they focus on Israel. Like, why would you do that? You know, that's true. But I think the reply, I, I mean, there are all kinds of uh, people who are focused on one issue. Right. Yeah. And you can say, but isn't this kind of like this other thing in somewhere else in the world? And you might say, yeah, uh, but for whatever reason, you wound up focused on this issue. And normally you don't get accused of being a bigot uh, because you're focused on human rights in uh, in India and not in China, if that's just your thing. Right. It's not that you're they don't say, are you anti-Indian? Um, you know, that that's your issue. Now, I don't doubt that there are some people who are focused on this because they're anti-Semitic, but I don't think the logic behind some kind of universal allegation like that holds up. And, and the, again, it was like, you didn't even wait for that reply if you were making this kind of accusation. That was meant to bring the debate to a close, but that's a perfectly plausible reply. Also, you could say, well, Israel is actually a country that we have influence on in a way that we don't have influence on right. India. And so this could actually be effective. You know, there, there's a couple of different replies that are in favor of it. But uh, I was looking at like this definition of anti-Semitism that was adopted. It may have been changed, but in like 2016 or 17. And one of the aspects was criticizing Israeli policy in a way that you wouldn't criticize another country uh, mm -hmm. who was uh, adopting the same kinds of policies you're critical of or objecting to. And, you know, I have to say, like, I, first of all, I don't even know exactly where I stand on BDS, but I definitely was probably guilty of at least suspecting people of singling out Israel in part out of in a way that just I really shouldn't have. But it did seem weird to me, like, why Israel and why are we punishing other people who might just be equally critical of Israel? You know, like that that held a lot more resonance with me then than it did now. But I don't know. Where do you yeah. stand on BDS? It's not like I've signed anything saying I'm boycotting Israel. I wouldn't do that. I haven't really taken any kind of big position, except to say that I don't think you can infer anti-Semitism from support of BDS. And it, it shouldn't be like illegal or a prerequisite for getting a contract with a state. Yeah, government. I completely um, agree with that. Yeah, the, uh, I think if you ask, I mean, one thing people might say is, yeah, there are, there are a lot of other um, human rights uh, uh, cases that are super bad in the world, some that are worse. But how many of those are in countries where, A, the U.S. Um, gives them a whole lot of money for their military and some of the weapons are used to enforce the policy you're, you're opposed to? And B, how many of those countries are constantly lauded by our politicians as beacons of democracy in their region when, uh, you know, a couple million people aren't allowed to vote, even though the government rules over them? And again, I understand how this happened historically, and I and and and, and I understand why uh, Israeli Jews don't want to extend the vote to them. But still, if you ask, well, well, why aren't you complaining about this? In some ways, it's not that hard to draw some distinctions in reply. You know, this is why this is why I get really angry over this, that there are answers. Yeah. The other tack you could take is to say, well, look, if, if you want to talk about a colonialist empire, why are you not just focused on your own country uh, right. rather than Israel? But of course, a lot of these people are fiercely critical also of the United States and United States foreign foreign policy. And but that is another question. If I wanted to put on the hat of a staunch opponent of BDS, I would say, look, all like, yes, like a country, especially a country that feels itself threatened, as you said earlier, they're going to have objectionable policies considered in the abstract. But you're no better to single out Israel, you know, and focus your energies there rather than even on what's going on in your own country, never mind what's going on in Saudi Arabia or something like that. You know, I, I guess like I, I don't buy it. But mm -hmm. I see, you know, the idea that all countries with power and threats are horrible, <laughs> like it's right. it's not wrong. Right. But there's a kind of reply you might get there conceivably even from me, which is um, 
Yeah, I, I, I think a lot about my country's foreign policy and what I don't like about it. And I believe that in some cases, what I don't like about it is a result of the uncritical relationship with Israel. When, when the ambassador to Israel says, as he said, like a few months ago, if Israel wants to attack Iran, we got their back. I, I don't like that. We don't say that about many countries. And then if you say what I just said, well, maybe that's in some sense a result of Israel's influence on our policy. Well, that's an anti-Semitic trope. If you attribute any any form, you know, any any significant influence to anything that could be called an Israel lobby. Uh, so you think we're all like Illuminati? Is that what you think, Bob? About I was us? About to, I was about to pull that out and see how you yeah. would react. Yes. <laughs> I have a diagram. Have I shown you my diagram? <laughs> no. I see some on your wall Giant though, a bunch of things. Spider and it's encompassing the world. <laughs> I'm not invited. That's the, my big objection to the Jewish Illuminati. The protocols they, meetings don't uh, include you. Yeah, I I don't even get BCC'd on the emails. Yeah, by the way, there's a documentary on the on the BDS by Julia Baca it, 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 about these laws, about the state laws. And there's an interesting thing relevant to what we said, which is that in Little Rock, uh, it's like the, the the people spearheading this in Arkansas are evangelicals. And the head of the largest synagogue in Little Rock is opposed to these laws. He's not in favor of BDS. He's just opposed to the anti-BDS laws. Yeah. And uh, and also, like, he, for a long time, hadn't even heard this was going on. It's like that's how focused the Israeli lobbying effort is on the evangelicals. It's almost mm -hmm. like why, why bother with the Jewish channels, you know? And, you know, definitely surveys of American Jews show that trend of being less likely to support Israel than yeah than in the past. And uh, yeah, I think you're right. This is in a way to make up for that, the evangelicals and what the evangelical motives for this are. I guess maybe it's just money. Uh, maybe it's, you know, some feeling of a connection with Israel and the Jews. And oh, I think uh, it's, I yeah. don't think it's just I don't think it's just money. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's uh, yeah, I think I think they're sold. Um, yeah, I think I that's think 9-11 right. helped in that regard, probably. Yeah. Uh, so it's like it's us and the Jews against the Muslims, right? Um, so you're saying Israel was behind 9-11? Oh, did I forget to mention that? That's <laughs> that's only one tentacle of the octopus, by the way. <laughs> yeah. No Jews were in the towers. That's, <laughs> that's been uh, documented. documented. Yeah. 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 Maybe as a transition, then we could talk about two final things in closing. One, why this is such an illustrative example yeah. of the Overton window. It, it's It's very different from a lot of them, but... What what are some of the differences? There's a very specific way to police it in a way that there often isn't in other topics. You know, the 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 broad brush called them anti-Semitic strategy is so tried and true with this that people rarely, you know, appeal to anything else. Um, even these BDS laws are pitched as some way of combating anti-Semitism. Um, so like, that's one way I think it's a little different. Same-sex marriage, for example, didn't have a way of police, a specific way of policing the boundaries. No, I, I personally think that the way gay rights have moved so fast has to do with other, other things. I mean, we'll, we'll I, we probably should do a whole episode on that. I mean, I feel some of the same kind of heat I feel about the Ukraine war, uh, with Israel, I guess. One of which is just that if you ex try to explain the perspective of Russians or Putin or pro-war Russians or Putin, like how yeah. they came to be the way they are, it's You're like pro-Putin. Yeah, it's like if you try to explain that, you know, in the West Bank, well, wouldn't you expect an armed resistance? It's like you're justifying it. Actually, no, I'm just saying. Yeah, Putinist is the new anti-Semitism like anti <laughs> accusation. In fact, I saw Eric Alterman, if, if that's his first name, but the guy it who is. wrote the review of, of uh, the Blumenthal book still was added in 2023 and just back in March and called him, in addition to all the other things, like a Putinist. So it really oh, is like the, the kind of new way of attacking people, just trying to do, like in your case, Explain it from their perspective, the idea, the prospect of Ukraine joining NATO, like how you would feel about that if you were, you know, like that's yeah. be like what people would get mad when you tried to humanize Hitler or something like that. Yeah. You know, you're reciting Putin talking points. Yes. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. No, I would say, I mean, this is um, I mean, we haven't even talked about some of the policy implications like, you know, the U.S. Uh, military support for Israel. You know, that's one of the things that's in the hanging in the fire kind of 
And yet, I, I don't personally think Israel is all that dependent on that at this point. It's a very prosperous society, very technically advanced. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, it, it is a case where to an unusual extent, I guess, you know, as we said, sometimes policies are just, it's like there's an Overton window, you know? It's like if you favor no income tax, you're outside of it. But But there's not a lot of stigmatization. I would just say Israel is an area of what seems to me like pretty uh, pretty intense stigmatization efforts on the part of some people, not not all Israel supporters by any means. No, um, right. And those have loomed pretty large. I, I, it's illustrative in that fact, A, that there's you will you, you can be demonized or tarred and also in a very specific way. Whereas if you're trying to get universal health care in the window you might be called a socialist or you might be called or or, or you might just yeah. be dismissed in other ways. But like it's not nobody's going to demonize you in quite the same way. May now that might not have been true 25 years ago either. But I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. And there's a very big generational difference. Um, and, I, and I don't think just among Jews. No, uh, you know, there's pretty widespread support for BDS. Uh among younger generations. I mean, I don't know if it's a majority, but uh, um, yeah, it just seems like it's all coming too late. I mean, and having no effect on our funding of Israel either, zero. Like none of this shift has had that quite, but maybe it wouldn't yet. It's too entrenched for, uh, and, and the shift is too recent for that to have an effect. Yeah, I yeah. don't, or, or really almost anything else. I mean, you know, it's like Biden pointedly said, uh, no, I, I don't really welcome a visit from Bibi uh, at, at some point. But that was after the, 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 you know, the assembly of this extreme coalition. Yeah. And and so it's not even clear that that's some kind of shift relative right. to the reality in Israel. Right. Um, Trump, I think Biden personally doesn't like Netanyahu from what I've read. But a lot of people don't who, who, who have <laughs> encountered him personally. All right. Last question, then. Where would you like to see the Overton window set on this? Like how far we haven't talked about the other end of this. What do you think would be acceptable on the you know, if you could be philosopher king and just set what was the issues that are being discussed? And yes, you can say every position should be viable, but just in terms of the limited uh, space for having reasonable debate. Um, like, where would you put it on both sides? Where would you put the boundaries? If oh, man. You, could just... uh, you know, it's a good question. I don't have a very interesting answer. I mean, you should be able to criticize the policies of any nation. Uh, you should be able to uh, criticize the things that Palestinians are doing in response to some of those policies. I, I think, well, this is just a completely generic thing, I would say, is that I wish you could offer explanations for why people do things without being accused of justifying whatever they've done. Right. It, it it's, it's, uh, you know, that, that that's too generic to be interesting. I mean, do you have on this issue, do you have bounds you would propose? It, yeah. Like, it seems like a good question, but then when you actually try to answer it, like, I do think like BDS, uh, should be on the table, even if I don't know precisely where I land on it. I think, you know, this there's real examination of whether Israel is an apartheid state and what that means and what are like that should be on the table. And people shouldn't be called anti-Semitic for, for thinking that. On the other side, you know, I, I don't even really see like kind of openly fascist. I'm sure this exists, but not in the kind of mainstream arena do I see kind of openly fascist advocacy for a kind of ethnic cleansing. But I, I think that's good. You know, I don't know like what the most right wing view that I think is, you know, uh, a candidate for reason debate. I'm not sure what that is exactly that. So, you know, I always err on the side of let everybody say whatever they want without suspecting their motives. But I'm sure it's there. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think the most right-wing defense of Israel that you think, even if you disagree with it, is candidate for reasoned debate? Wow. Um, I mean, I guess 
This is where you have to distinguish between understanding why it is held and uh, applauding it. Um, I will, I mean, this is not an answer to your question. It's an evasion of it. But on the, on the point you made uh, about there hasn't been just openly fascist advocacy of ethnic cleansing, there's... Uh, some evidence that 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 there is still some blowback you get from for, for that. One of those two extreme ministers, uh, members of the cabinet we mentioned, I forget which one, um, said something approving about the last thing that could be called a pogrom a couple of months ago in the West Bank when settlers rampaged through some village, and he did walk it back. So we yeah. got enough blowback, so we had to walk it back, and so that's that's good, I guess. Uh, it, it worries me that. Um, these things can still accelerate even if no one is openly advocating it, you know? Yeah. And that's been one of the the tricks is being critical of these groups, but while at the same time, kind of looking the other way in terms of actual consequences for, from these settler, the more extreme wing of the settlers groups. Yeah. Like I understand why Israelis feel threatened by Iran. I understand why Iran feels uh, threatened by Israel and by other actors in the region and that's an example where there's this stigma on kind of trying to explain perspectives that I think gets in the way. Yeah, um, right. right. And Israel does have a lot of connections to other uh, political issues in uh, that uh, are affected by um, our connection to Israel. So, And I will say, look, there is there are amazing degrees of anti-Semitism in the Arab world. Yeah, oh, for sure. I was in Saudi Arabia. Now, this is like 14 years ago by now, maybe a little more. Uh, and uh, I was on a bus next to this guy who's like a professor, a Saudi professor. And he started doing the, I mean, like, I, you know, I think he probably even said the Jews were behind 9-11. But it was that kind of thing just right off the bat. And he yeah. was he was a very well-educated Saudi. Um, and, you know, one thing you get if you if you're kind of on the left on Israel is, the Israelis say to you, or at least some of them, you know, you don't know the neighborhood, man. Yeah. And I agree. I don't. Uh, and that's, right. that's going to shape your attitude. A hundred percent. You're right. Like we haven't been emphasizing this at all, but there are a lot of Muslims and Arabs that are anti-Semitic and wish a lot of harm on Israel and Jews. And sometimes that's explained by Israel's treatment of Palestinians, and sometimes it's not. Mm. That is definitely true and uh, a, a big part of this, too. And like that's a good example of the kind of thing that should be recognized. That was always the thing when I was growing up is people would say, we can't. How can we give them a state when they don't uh, recognize our right to exist? It's an existential threat. That's a term you hear a lot mm -hmm. in, in trying to police the Overton window the term existential threat. And it's not that that doesn't, that that question makes no sense. It's just the way it was used uh, to shut down argument, like legitimate arguments. Often. Right. Yes. I'm for, I'm for pretty wide Overton windows. So speaking of which, so that's the name of the show, Overton windows. If you've made it this far, God bless you. Um, really? And uh, we don't really know which one we're going to tackle next. It, again, it'll be, available both at Very Bad Wizards Patreon and for paid subscribers of the Non-Zero newsletter. And there will be, again, a kind of a preview on the regular public Non-Zero podcast feed. And um, so check that out. And I think we agree that we deserve uh, financial support, right? We do. Anyone who's opposes financial support for us should be stigmatized. I think that I think most of them are anti-Semitic. <laughs> they are. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, and join us next time on Overton Windows. That is the correct title.